Welcome to GovCast. I am your host, Managing Editor Amy Kluber. Established in 2009 to regulate and implement initiatives to curb hazards associated with tobacco across all forms, e-cigarettes and patches included, the FDA Center for Tobacco Products has an important mission. At the head of this mission is Center Director Mitch Zeller, who brings to the agency a public policy perspective and deep interest in decreasing tobacco use. Mitch, welcome to the show. You earned a law degree and you joined the Center for Science and the Public Interest as a public interest attorney. So considering this journey, what brought you to where you are today? I think it actually goes back to being an undergraduate and graduating with a double major in government and policy studies. So I think my career path, even if it didn't necessarily include law school when I was an undergraduate, was somewhat predetermined by my interest in government and policy. Way back when, I was an intern in the Carter administration, at the very beginning of the Carter administration in the spring of 1977, when I was a sophomore in college. And I spent six months working in the White House. And it was as much being there and being jazzed by being in Washington and working on important issues as the opportunities that I, that I had to do work in what was then the Office of Public Liaison. It's called catching Potomac fever. <laughs> I caught Potomac fever as a sophomore in college. I only wanted to go to law school uh, in Washington. Uh, much of the rest of my career is really serendipitous, but I, I look back at my double major and that, that internship in the Carter administration as uh, very formative. So considering that, you worked in both the public and the private sectors, including going between them. So what drew you back into the public sector? Did you always want to work in public service? I had this real interest in public policy and how public policy gets made. And I had a couple of very influential professors as an undergraduate who basically forced me to apply to law school. But they said, resist the traditional career path when you're in law school, which is to either go to work for a corporation or a law firm. And they said, with my interest and passion for government and policy, seek out those opportunities as a law student. And when I was a, a law student, I spent many hours in a clinical program representing veterans who either were trying to get dishonorable discharges from the Vietnam era upgraded or going before the VA to get service-connected disability for awful things that happened to them when they were in, in the service. And that cemented my commitment to uh, public interest and public service. The FDA path that I wound up taking, it's now 37 years that I've been working on one FDA-related issue or another was completely serendipitous. And that, that has to do with that first job at the Center for Science and the Public Interest, which was originally supposed to be just a one-year fellowship that led to uh, a six-year stint working on food labeling, food safety, advertising issues. And then each subsequent position I've had in my career has been related to FDA issues the last 25 years working one way or the other on tobacco. You've been working on these topics, as you said, for 25 years or maybe over 30 now. What are the major issues you've worked on and what has changed in that field over the past 25 or 30 years? The biggest change is uh, FDA is now in the business of regulating tobacco products. But as I look back on all the issues that I worked on, either as a public interest attorney, I worked on the Hill for five years doing oversight of FDA and other federal agencies as counsel to an oversight subcommittee. A couple of the major issues that I worked on, and they all come back to the role of government and and the role of regulatory policy in protecting public health, I, I think the highlights would include in the six years that I was at the Center for Science and the Public Interest, and this shows how hard it is to get policy change, 
the singular accomplishment was changing regulatory policy on a group of food preservatives known as sulfites, which at the time, science was just emerging to show that if you were sensitive or allergic to sulfites, the reactions could be life-threatening, if not deadly. And it took five years of citizen petitions to FDA, advocacy and lobbying to Congress, media advocacy, pounding away the drumbeat that not everybody is sulfite sensitive, but for those who are, it can be life-threatening. And at the end of a five-year effort, we didn't get everything that we wanted, but we got some important changes to policy. Sulfites were banned for use in, in the foods that were associated with deaths. You can look at every bottle of wine today, and it'll say contains sulfites because of the work that we did back in the 1980s when I was at the Center for Science and the Public Interest and other disclosures as well. So that, that'll be one highlight. I'll talk separately about tobacco. When I was on the Hill, the power of oversight is to shine the spotlight on needed policy change in the executive branch. And my five years on the Hill was spent focusing on issues like what would be the right policy if food companies were going to be authorized to make health claims. Prior to some changes in the law in the early 1990s, you couldn't make health claims on food labels without turning them technically into drugs. That didn't make sense with everything that had been learned about the relationship between diet and disease. And so FDA started to make some policy change, and I would say some needed congressional oversight helped steer the agency in the right direction. It ultimately resulted in passage of a law called the Nutrition Labeling and Education Act in 1990, which is still in place today and, and serves as a guide for how health claims for food products should be regulated. And the oversight that we did, I think, contributed to that. And then you also spent some time at the American Legacy Foundation, which we know is the truth initiative today. Describe what you focused on there. I spent two really interesting years at the American Legacy Foundation. And it was uh, after I left FDA the first time. This is now my second stint at the agency. And I was executive vice president for uh, marketing, communications, strategic partnerships, and policy. But much of the focus was on the truth campaign. When I joined Legacy, the Truth Campaign had just launched several months earlier, and I got to take the Truth Campaign through the end of its first two years of remarkable, game-changing approach to the use of paid media to reach kids at risk of smoking cigarettes. And back then, there were way more kids who were smoking compared to today and way more kids who were at risk of taking up a cigarette. And the groundbreaking use of paid advertising to dramatize both the harms of cigarette use in ways that kids would pay attention and to get them to understand industry behavior, industry targeting. It was game-changing and it was a, just a privilege to be there for two years to oversee that. Now, we are government CIO, media and research. With that, we focus a lot on the technology side of the impact of technology on government. When it comes to technology or IT, what does that look like at CTP or in your role in particular? Well, I'm the center director. I'm I'm not I'm not the CIO. I'm a a lawyer by training, and my colleagues say that I know just enough science to be dangerous, <laughs> uh, and I am by no means an IT expert. But having said that, the role of information technology, the role of technology generally in the work of the Center for Tobacco Products at FDA is extraordinarily important, and. I rely on people who know much more about the technology uh, than I do, but really in every aspect of our programmatic work, from how our Office of Science reviews massive applications for marketing authorization or authorization to make claims. One of the applications that we reviewed had over a million pages in the application. So things like being able to OCR the entries that came in to make it 
easier for our reviewers to find what they need in the applications. All kinds of social media platforms that we use in our research or in our public education campaigns. And then the good old-fashioned structural, functional IT that all agencies have. You add it all up and it's it's really the heartbeat of what we do at the Center for Tobacco Products. E-cigarettes are getting a lot of attention. And the reality for us as regulators is that we are playing catch up with the marketplace. We didn't even have regulatory authority over e-cigarettes until about three years ago. And prior to that, it really was the wild, wild west in the marketplace. Uh, the products were completely unregulated by FDA. New products, new technologies could come into the marketplace. Claims could be made. But that all changed starting in the summer of 2016. It's a new technology. The conventional combustible cigarette had been around for 100 years. And uh, it was much easier to play catch up with cigarettes when we began to regulate tobacco products in 2009 because of everything that had been learned about cigarettes than it has been over the last three years for e-cigarettes. So, for example, conventional toxicology, which works very well for better understood products like cigarettes, doesn't work as well for e-cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And so we have scientists who are using artificial intelligence to spot potential toxicological concerns when it comes to the chemical constituents in e-cigarettes. Don't ask me to explain how the AI works. I just know that in the absence of more mature and stood up uses of conventional toxicology, artificial intelligence is being used to, uh, to narrow that gap. We have a series of downloadable apps that we use from compliance and enforcement to our, our advertising efforts on the compliance and enforcement side. We have contracts with 55 or 56 different states and territories to enforce what we call the youth access restrictions under federal law, the law that nationally makes it illegal to sell tobacco products to anybody under the age of 18. Some legislation is pending that might raise that to 21, but for now, nationally, it's 18. But there are hundreds of thousands of retailers out there that sell tobacco products, and it's a lawful product. And how can a federal agency, even with the resources that we have, mount an inspection program when there are potentially hundreds of thousands of outlets that need to be inspected. So starting in 2010, we created a program, and the app here is critical, where we train and commission adults through contracts with uh, states and state-level entities. And they then recruit minors, and the so-called compliance checks where a trained and commissioned adult accompanies a minor into a store, and the kid tries to buy cigarettes, smokeless tobacco, or now e-cigarettes or cigars. But how do you collect all of that data? We've been doing this now for nine years. Last fall, we completed our one millionth inspection. And from the beginning, technology has played an important role because the adults have a tablet and all the information gets entered electronically and then immediately submitted to us for quality control and review. If the unannounced visit to the store resulted in an illegal purchase, then for the first violation, we work up a case and we send what's called a warning letter to the retailer. For second and subsequent violations, we seek fines that get uh, paid to the federal government, known as civil money penalties. And it all starts with the information that gets entered on that tablet by the inspectors, and we couldn't do the program otherwise. For our public education efforts, social media downloadable apps are hugely important. We just created a game for Xbox consoles because we are very scrupulous about looking at how at-risk teens consume media. There are agencies that we can contract with uh, that assist us in how to wisely buy media because this is all paid media efforts. 
And there are metrics known as indexing, where we can see for whether it's a TV show or a social media site or, or websites, which places kids go where they over-index for the consumption of, of that kind of media. And one of the things that we learned, it's, it's no shocker, is that the kids who remain at risk for taking up cigarettes love gaming. And so we created an Xbox console game, a really cool game that, that, that's, that's downloadable. And it's a scary, haunted thing where it's trying to communicate a very simple fact that for every four kids who become regular smokers as teens, only one of them won't become addicted later in life. And it's a, a scary game about you're with three other people and which one of the four is going to leave. It's only from the insight into kids' love of gaming and our ability to work with uh, with agencies and, and vendors that can create new entertainment like that, that delivers a powerful message about the costs of experimenting with cigarette if it's going to progress to regular smoking. So with the FDA being in the position of regulator, how do you deal with situations that depend on, for example, tobacco is an addiction? We're getting into mental health here. And with FDA being a regulator, how do you approach that positioning as far as managing both sides of that? Well, from a public health perspective, this is a marketplace for the sale of nicotine in any form when it comes to tobacco products, combustible, non-combustible. There are old, old industry documents that had remained uh, secret for decades that only began to be unearthed in the 1990s through a combination of congressional oversight, investigative journalism, and litigation. And the documents that came out in the 90s, which were the true words of the tobacco companies going back to the 1950s and the 1960s, showed that they knew the real business that they were in. And the business that they were in wasn't the cigarette or tobacco business. It was the nicotine business. In 1963, the top lawyer for Brown and Williamson, uh, which was then the third largest cigarette company in the United States. So this was a lawyer, not a scientist. 25 years before the Surgeon General was finally able to conclude that the nicotine in cigarettes was addictive. In 1963, the top lawyer for Brown and Williamson wrote, nicotine is addictive. We are then in the business of selling nicotine, an addictive drug. He didn't say they were in the cigarette business. He didn't say they were in the tobacco business. He said they were in the nicotine business. And dozens of documents from all the major cigarette companies in that era basically saying the same thing. That really hasn't changed. This is a marketplace for nicotine. The challenge for us as regulators is, with all the progress that's been made in reducing the number of people who smoke and how much they smoke, it remains the leading cause of preventable disease and death. And 90% of all smokers start smoking when they're kids. 87% have experimented with cigarettes before the age of 18, and half of them will become regular smokers before they're even legally old enough to buy a pack of cigarettes. The challenge with e-cigarettes is, well, finally, we have a technology to deliver nicotine into the lungs without having to burn tobacco leaves. The problem is that while that is potentially beneficial to addicted adult cigarette smokers, we have this epidemic of kids' use of e-cigarettes. And nicotine is by no means a benign or safe drug. On the other hand, the very same drug extracted from the same plant has been inserted into gum, patch, and lozenge and has been on the market as a safe and effective cessation aid for 40 years. And so when nicotine is delivered in gum, patch, and lozenge form, it's so safe and so effective, it doesn't even require a doctor's prescription. It's been over the counter for the last 25 years. So this isn't about the drug as much as it's about the mechanism for the delivery of the drug. You attach the nicotine to smoke particles, 
and it becomes a toxic brew of disease and death. You take the very same drug and put it into gum patch and lozenge, and it's so safe and effective that it doesn't even require a doctor's prescription. Harms to kids for sure uh, if they're using any form of nicotine delivery. Our job as regulators is to look at this continuum of, of nicotine delivery, starting with the most harmful, which is cigarettes, to the least harmful, the nicotine gum patch and lozenge, and figure out the right set of regulatory policies. Used as a way to help smokers quit, nicotine can be beneficial. Used as a way to get kids to experiment with products, it can be incredibly harmful. And the challenge for us is it's, it's always going to be some combination of the two. At least now we have regulatory authority over e-cigarettes, which as I said earlier, we didn't have until the summer of 2016. And we're trying to apply sound principles of science, sound principles of public health to do everything that we can to protect kids, to reduce the harm associated with the ongoing use of any tobacco products by adults, and figure out what the right comprehensive nicotine regulatory policy should be going forward. So with all of this coming into play, there's a lot of strong opinions around tobacco and nicotine, as you touched on. What challenges from other stakeholders in the industry do you face? I learned a long time ago that we don't do what we do with the hopes of or the goal of making stakeholders happy. <laughs> we very much value the relationship that we have with stakeholders in all sectors, whether it's industry, public health, tobacco control, state and local officials, the general public. And we have an Office of Stakeholder Relations that works full-time to make sure that, that we are hearing from stakeholders and that they are hearing from us. Having said that, we can sometimes have an adversarial relationship, not just with industry, but also with public health and tobacco control sectors. We are currently in the middle of ongoing litigation that's been filed against us, not just by the industry, but by public health and tobacco control groups, um, which is the right of any interested party once the agency takes what's called final agency action. And it's then uh, ripe for a lawsuit to start if someone so disagrees with a policy that we put into place that they want to get the policy overturned in court. So I would say that we have a really good dialogue with, with all sectors, whether it's industry, public health, tobacco control. There are things that we just agree to disagree on. And we meet them in court when they choose to sue us. As a regulatory agency, all we do is follow the regulatory science, and we use that as our guide for policy. When we've taken final action on a policy, and if someone wants to sue us, then the courts will decide whether the evidence base that we relied on was sufficient to justify the policy that we tried to put into place. We win in court, we lose in court. It's a fact of life. But the goal is not to please or satisfy the stakeholders. It's to follow the science, keep the dialogue going with all interested parties and work to the degree that we can in a cooperative way going forward on, again, what is the leading cause of preventable disease and death. You mentioned earlier the use of AI and perhaps disseminating some of the data that you collect or look at. Is there any other technologies that your department or center is looking into using? And how do you think that differs with other federal agencies? Some of the basic IT functionality that we have is very, very similar to, to any other federal agency. I think one of the areas where we might be different beyond what I'd said earlier about the use of technology in our compliance and enforcement efforts, in our product review efforts, and in the public education efforts is how can we use any technology to push information out to the public? So those results that come in on those tablets from the, the compliance checks, the now more than 1 million compliance checks that we've done, that all then gets entered into a searchable database. 
So anybody can go to our website and we've actually improved the functionality and the searchability. If you want to look at what the violations were in a particular state or in a particular county during a particular period of time, you can easily search it now in a searchable database. We fund massive amounts of, of research. We are funding the largest longitudinal study that has ever been done on tobacco use for the last eight, nine years, starting at the planning stage. We have a longitudinal study that's following 46,000 adults and kids, both users and non-users of tobacco products. So imagine, and the surveys are in the field either every year or every other year. Imagine the massive amounts of data that are being collected from that, just from the survey instrument alone. Well, we use technology every time we have a new round of data collection that we call waves. Every time we've gotten a new wave of results, we clean it up and we make the raw data publicly available to researchers. Researchers love to be able to have access to raw data. And it's only through the technology that makes that possible that we can uh, enable those, those kinds of secondary analyses of really important data that's coming in on this, this large longitudinal study. The other unique feature of that study, it's called the PATH study, the Population Assessment of Tobacco and Health. And this has less to do with how sophisticated the technology is, but access to information. From consenting adults, and now from parents who consent on behalf of the kids that participate in this survey, we collect either blood, saliva, or urine samples. And those samples then undergo special laboratory analysis so that we can measure exposures to chemicals of concern for whatever product the individual said that they were consuming or products. There are people that, that, that use more than one tobacco product at the same time. And we're making those biospecimens available for additional analysis by researchers because we, we collect, store, and preserve the sample. So I would say it's a sophisticated use of IT and good old-fashioned just give researchers access to raw information and let them do the secondary analyses that will benefit all of us with additional insights, additional findings, additional closing of the research gaps, especially for the, the new and more novel technologies like e-cigarettes or heated tobacco products. Do you think there's any room for maybe better using technology to accomplish some of your missions? I think that we can always do better. We have really smart people that are very knowledgeable about the available technologies, but I think that there are always going to be gaps and there are always going to be ways for us to make the access to our information of, of any kind more consumer friendly, easier to use. That goes back to uh, your question about stakeholders. Some of the changes that we've made using technology to alter the ease with which interested parties can access the compliance check database or other information. Some of the changes were made only because we got feedback, some of it negative, uh, but that's okay, <laughs> from stakeholders who said, well, yeah, you have this information out there on this website, but it's really hard for me to search it. It's really hard for me to download it. What can you do to improve that? And so we go back to our vendors and we say, you know, we're hearing this from more than one party. What can be done? So there, there's, it's a long way of saying there's always room for improvement. And what's some of the data that people would be wanting to improve access to receive? Is it more so about like trends or maybe some of the research studies that are being conducted? I think that with newer products like e-cigarettes, to the degree that we can sort of narrow that, that knowledge gap, I'll give a couple of examples, and the degree to which technology can help accelerate 
the closing of those knowledge gaps. It's in everybody's best interest to look at the world of technology to do that. And I'll give you a, a couple of examples with e-cigarettes. So it's very easy to follow basic patterns of use. I said we have this longitudinal study. There are many other surveys that are cross-sectional, not longitudinal, that ask the questions year after year, what product or products are you using? That's the, the easy part. There are more fundamental and frankly more important questions about patterns of use that to the degree technology can help narrow the gap, that would be great. There's a real concern with e-cigarettes over something called dual use. And that is the predominant pattern of use for e-cigarettes, both with kids and adults. And dual use is if you were a former cigarette smoker and you started using e-cigarettes, you didn't completely switch to e-cigarettes. You continue to smoke cigarettes and you're also vaping. And we don't know. And for people who can uh, help us bring in technology to get an answer to this question faster than uh, has been the case, please contact us at the Center for Tobacco Products at FDA. Sitting here today, I can't tell you whether the dual use that is taking place with e-cigarettes today is mostly some necessary transitional phase for former exclusive smokers to become exclusive e-cigarette users, or whether dual use is what we call the new normal, where that smoker now has the best of both worlds. They can light up where it's still okay to light up and vape where it's not. We know from the decades of research that we've done on cessation that it is very hard to quit smoking cigarettes. The overwhelming majority of smokers are concerned about their health, have made multiple quit attempts, and have not succeeded. And that biomarker data that I referred to and the early returns from the analysis of the blood, saliva, and urine has showed us that when you compare exposures in exclusive cigarette users to dual users, there really isn't any reduction overall in exposure to toxins. The only reduction comes if you completely switch from cigarettes to e-cigarettes, but most e-cigarette users don't. They continue to smoke. So to the degree that technology can narrow the gap on getting these fundamental answers to questions about dual use, that would be great. The second issue with e-cigarettes is the so-called gateway issue. For kids who experiment with an e-cigarette, kids who would otherwise never have even experimented with a cigarette. We've made this great progress in keeping kids close to smoking, but for whatever reason, we have 11 million kids who either are using e-cigarettes or open to using e-cigarettes. And one of the key questions there is the gateway effect. If a kid experiments with, with e-cigarettes, does that mean that they're more likely to become a regular smoker? We have a partial answer to that question. We know that kids who experiment with e-cigarettes who previously hadn't used any tobacco product are more likely to experiment with a cigarette but we don't have an answer to the bottom line gateway question of, but what about becoming a regular smoker? To the degree that technology can help us get that answer faster, it would really help. I don't know what that technology is, but um, we're hopeful. Do you see the center being relevant in, say, 20 years? Uh, sadly, yes. Um, again, the, the progress that has been made over the last 50 years since the first Surgeon General's report in 1964 when there was an adult smoking rate of about 44%, almost one in two adults smoked in the United States at the time of the first Surgeon General's report in 1964. We now have an adult smoking rate, depending upon the survey, of about 14, 15%. So a two-thirds reduction in the percentage of adults who smoke. But still, basically, one in six adults who continue to smoke and smoke regularly. That's a problem because we have an annual death toll from tobacco use, primarily from first-hand and second-hand exposure to cigarettes of just under half a million people a year. The 50th anniversary Surgeon General's report that came out in 2014 
at a time when consumption and prevalence is going down, actually upped the annual death toll primarily from cigarettes because the Surgeon General added diseases to the, the list of tobacco-caused diseases. So it's somewhat ironic, consumption and prevalence going down, but actually more people dying than we previously knew each year. So the conservative estimate is 480,000 preventable deaths every year in the United States. So the math is just all you need to know. From the issuance of the 50th anniversary report in 2014 through mid-century, that's more than 17 million people in the United States who will die unnecessary and completely avoidable deaths from tobacco use, primarily because of cigarettes. So yes, sadly, CTP is going to be in business for quite a long time. The nature of the products that we regulate will continue to change. And we strongly believe in the tools of product regulation to successfully reduce the harms from the use of tobacco products for those who continue to use tobacco products. But yeah, we're going to be in business for a while. Especially as some of these new technologies come to play, as you mentioned, like e-cigs and right. all that. Right. So with your career history situated in public health, do you see yourself continuing in this area and maybe even beyond the FDA? Well, this is my second stint back at the agency. I, I served for seven years in the 1990s. And I left only because the Supreme Court shut the FDA effort on tobacco down in 2000. And in order for me to continue to work on tobacco, I had to leave FDA. And I wanted to continue to work on tobacco. That's why I went to the Legacy Foundation and then spent over 10 years in the private sector consulting on tobacco policy and cessation issues. I always felt when I left FDA the first time that there was unfinished business for me, personally and professionally. I wanted to stay at the agency to continue to do the tobacco work. I could have stayed, but we couldn't have worked on tobacco. It took Congress nine years to pass legislation to put the agency back in the business of regulating tobacco products. I've been center director now. It's almost uh, six and a half years. It's a labor of love. It's hard. We live at that intersection of law and policy and science and politics and advocacy and communications. And it's kind of where all those worlds collide. You, you have to love living in that space uh, to come to work every day. But the people at the Center for Tobacco Products do, even though we work in the equivalent of a fishbowl with everybody looking at every single step that we take, every single action that we take. But it is a labor of love. It's a privilege to have been back at the agency for now almost six and a half years, and we have a lot more work to do. What is your idea of mission accomplished? What does that world look like? I guess I haven't asked myself that question, even though in tobacco control circles there for years have been something called end game discussions. What would the end game be for so-called tobacco control efforts? I'll tell you one part of that, one thing that we are, that we are working on that, that is a potentially game-changing policy. I'm not prepared to declare victory and success over this, but it is a profoundly game-changing, impactful policy. And that is to go back to what we were talking earlier about, this is really a marketplace for nicotine. We have a regulatory tool called the product standard. And the product standard is the authority to either ban or limit the allowable level of any ingredient or compound or constituent or additive in the finished tobacco product delivered to the consumer. And Congress made it clear that we could use the product standard authority to mandate maximum levels of nicotine in tobacco products, as long as for cigarettes we didn't take it down to zero. Last year, we issued something called an Advanced Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, ANPRM, where we shared all the science that we have about nicotine reduction, and we asked all the questions and highlighted all the issues that we felt that we needed public comment on when an agency is not yet ready to issue a proposed rule, but it is very interested in soliciting information and comments from interested parties. And former Commissioner Gottlieb uh, and HHS Secretary Azar 
uh, in an op-ed in the Washington Post last fall, went on the record as favoring uh, mandatory reductions in nicotine content in cigarettes. And it is a matter of public record that we are working on that proposed rule. It hasn't published yet, but we are working on it. We have done dynamic population-level modeling, so another use of really sophisticated technology of sorts through a process called expert elicitation, where we brought outside experts in to agree on the assumptions that would get baked into the modeling that was done. And then the model was run, I don't know, hundreds of thousands or millions of times uh, out through the end of the century. Because remember I said earlier, 90% of all smokers started smoking when they were kids. Well, what if future generations of kids who will engage in risky behavior, we can't stop that, but what if the cigarette of the future that they will experiment with could no longer create or sustain addiction, or the levels of nicotine were at a minimally or non-addictive level? And we published the results of the model in the New England Journal early last year. And were we to get this right, more than 33 million people who would have gone on to become regular smokers won't. This would result in an adult smoking rate of less than 1.5%. And from this single policy, more than 8 million cigarette-caused deaths, and this is conservative because it's only first-hand exposure to cigarette smoke, and every year about 40,000 people die from second-hand exposure. So not even including deaths avoided from second-hand exposure. More than 8 million deaths that would otherwise have occurred amongst those who smoke would be avoided. So this is a game-changing policy. And I think part of envisioning a world where we have really taken huge strides as regulators and from a public health perspective to address the leading cause of preventable disease and death, that's high up on the list of not just what I want to work on, but what a bunch of very dedicated people at the Center for Tobacco Products are working on day in and day out. And that's something all of us watching want to see as well. So that's that's interesting. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm glad to close that interview out on that note. It was great talking to you and getting to know your perspective about regulating tobacco and something that's been such a polarizing topic in our history of the nation. So thank you. I look forward to seeing what comes out of the center. Thanks so much for having me. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. GovCast is produced and hosted by Amy Kluber. Edited by Chris Edwards. Theme music provided by Big Hoax. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.